Alright, double prizes! Let's go home and play. <laughs> what is this? Fake Sire, is this... This Hades costume is the stinkiest costume on this brand. <laughs> Babies are often very useless when you need to get things done. Take a puff. Do you fear Bam. Bing Bong is a sus individual. I'm Gabby Gabby. Will you be my friend? Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersock. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod. Send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com or support us on Patreon by becoming a member of Jerry's gang at patreon.com slash mousemadness. Chris, we are back to our usual routine here. We uh, last week decided to take a little bit of a break because sure. life is a little, little bit insane here down the home stretch of the summer into the happens fall. Sometimes. Sure. Uh, so we are we're back in the brackets. I hope that everybody enjoyed the Pinocchio review. It's a little taste of what the old Jerry's gang gets over on Patreon. And we're getting ready to gear up for our winter trivia coming up here towards the end of the year. So if you want to be part of Jerry's gang, come get in on some trivia. Uh, take down the beauty and the niece the back-to-back mm. reigning champs of mm. Jerry's Gang Trivia. Join us, $5 at patreon.com slash madness, mouse madness. It is a fantastic time. We'd love to have you there. I think it's I think it's the fall trivia that I think we still have to is do. It, winter, it feels like it, winter should be here by now, but it does. I guess we, are, right. we are entering into fall. I guess you're and right. And as we enter into fall, we enter into spooky season. Yeah. And as things get spookier, we start thinking about scarier things and we think about villainy. And yep. we're here with a very bread and butter type bracket. Uh, this is one that just seemed ripe for the plucking for us for this Halloween spooky season. It is the best Pixar villain. Now, we started off our Mouse Madness adventure all those years ago Long with, a little, with a little one-two punch of best Disney hero and best Disney villain. Um, and, and so we're back to talk some pretty basic uh, Disney movie, but in this case, Pixar movie villainy. And uh, we had to bring on one of our day ones. Yep. One of our biggest podcast supporters, not yep. necessarily in terms of listens, but in terms. <laughs> I hear the real thing. And uh, it's it's Julia. It's my girlfriend, Julia. Julia, welcome back to the pod. So happy to be here. <laughs> um, so you've mentioned on the pod before that you, you come from a theater background, you come from a musical theater background, and villains are popular in works of fiction in works of theater. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, what when, when we say best villain, what are some things that come to mind? Maybe they're characters from theater. Maybe they're just kind of like uh, character traits. Yeah, well, um, I've never really played a villain. I'm usually like the victim of the villain. <laughs> but I'd say <laughs> um, somebody who makes a really strong villain to me is somebody who is like really just endlessly committed to the bit yeah um someone who has like a strong backstory and you can see why they're doing what they're doing you know yeah. there's yeah. like a clear like motivation 
to why they're creating or why they're committing villainous acts. So to me, that is what makes a really strong villain. And just like someone who's like ruthless and just (laughs) little respect for those around them. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think that's a great definition of it, especially when we go into these Pixar villains, because a lot of these are kind of cookie cutter villainous characters. And so we're going to get a lot of them really excited to get into it. Uh, but before we do, Chris, we got to talk a little spoonful of sugar. What are, <laughs> yeah. what are you two drinking over there? Yeah. Um, so we have a we have a communal spoonful of sugar here because we have two bodies in one room. Sure. But we we we, we chose health. We chose some health this evening. Love that for you. Um, we're, we're getting ready to go to a wedding. So we want to be as um, healthy as possible as we make our reappearance amongst many uh, friends and families that we haven't <laughs> seen in a while. So. Um, we went with a, a little shake combination. Oh. Uh, this is a protein shake combination. We've got two scoops of chocolate. Yum. We've got banana, two bananas Yum. to be precise. Ooh. We got Make about it. two cups of oat milk, extra creamy, baby. Double it. We got about two handfuls of blueberries and we got exactly six strawberries in there. <laughs> um, it creates this nice little purplish uh, grayish, brownish. I was going to say it's a, it's a Mordew milkshake is what I'm going to go ahead and call it because with so many proteins and so many nutrients inside this milkshake, I feel the power of Mordew inside of me, Kyle. Oh, love that for you. Hopefully it's a little bit safer than the actual power of Mordew. Um, over on my side, I'm, I'm back mixing some cocktails. Uh, this time around I went with a, a type of daiquiri. And I don't really remember what the name of the daiquiri is called, but the ingredients are two ounces of white rum, one ounce of Chambord uh, liqueur, which is like a red cherry type of liquor, um, half an ounce of lime juice, fourth of an ounce of simple syrup, and then you you top it off with a little lemon twist. I didn't get that crazy. Um, the Chambord is supposed to be like a fairly darker red. Uh, the Chambord that we have in our cabinet is probably about mm, three years old. So it's not so red as it once upon a time was. So I was hoping that this drink would be a little bit less of like a Mai Tai type color where it's a little yep. bit more of on the orange side uh, because I wanted to name this. I never knew my father after a, a Bruce from Finding Nemo mm, who yeah. never knew his father and then sniffs a little bit of this this bloody goodness and turns back into his shark self. So uh, I'll give it a taste. And yeah, I mean, still good. Still tastes good. Just doesn't look as pretty this time around, unfortunately. But that's the uh, I never knew my father. All right. Well, um, moving right along. We've got our bracket. Yep. Best Pixar villain. Of course. We've got our spoonful of sugars in hands. We've got some more new milkshakes. We've got some never knew my father's. <laughs> Uh, we need a demographic, Kyle. Yep. Every time we come up with one of these ideas for a bracket, we send the old Mouse Madness interns into the parks and we have them survey participants to get our field of 16. Kyle, what demographic did we choose this time around? The demographic that we sent the interns into the Disneyland parks for. We actually sent them into DCA because Oogie Boogie Bash has kicked off. We're in the spooky season and the Halloween parties have begun. So we sent the interns, we gave them a little extra dough to buy the extra ticket to get into this event. And uh, they just went around the park during Oogie Boogie's Bash to ask folks who they thought the best Pixar villain was, which is super fitting because Oogie Boogie's Bash uh, just debuted Ernesto de la Cruz 
as a character, uh, as a headlining character. And there's a another maybe one or two Pixar villains that show up as a, a meet and greet type character. So this this crowd was ripe for the picking when it comes to these 16 Pixar villains. But of course, as always, not all of the villains in Pixar can make it onto this bracket. So we've got we've got a, quite a few here that missed the dance. Chris, what are a couple for you? Well, for me, first one, top of my head, Al McWilligan. Oh, come on. AKA Al of Al's Toy Barn <laughs> from Toy Story 2, voiced by the incomparable Wayne Knight. Yep. Uh, plays Newman on Seinfeld, which is his uh, iconic role. But um, Al, just a just a a great villain because he's just kind of a normal guy. Uh, <laughs> and he's just kind of a little bit slimy. And I think this is going to be kind of a recurring trait when we're talking about Pixar villains is they're not as like black and white evil as some Disney villains tend to be. The Pixar ones kind of tend to be everyday villains. And Al is a great example of that. Like he's not really doing anything wrong. He's just really in the way of our movie. Totally. Um, and other one for me is, uh, Old Buzz from Lightyear. This is a, Old Buzz. a new entry on uh, on the Pixar villain roster. Uh, I will try not to spoil Lightyear if you haven't seen it already, but uh, there is a there is a time uh, travel element to the movie, and Buzz ends up in a confrontation with his self in the future. It's very complicated. Um, <laughs> it's pretty much when the movie jumps the shark for many many people. Um, would have loved to talk about all the intricacies of that relationship, but alas, I did want to shout out a, a submission from uh, one of our friends, Taylor. We told her no. we were doing this bracket and she said, I have a miss the dance for you. Well, I said, okay. And she's like, yes. And I was like, I, I don't, you're going to have to give me a movie. And she said, it's from Wally. And I was like, oh, are you talking about like Mo who's always cleaning up like dirt and he's kind of, she's like, Nope. And I was like, Oh, it's that autopilot. I totally forgot. There was like an autopilot villain in Wally. Cause that movie gets kind of crazy towards yeah. that. She's like, Nope. The villain in Wally is the American sedentary lifestyle. Wow. Yeah. It's not wrong. It's just probably not what comes to mind when, <laughs> when we're talking about villains for the, uh, you know, for those of us that aren't so, you know, big brain about these these villains and movies. Yeah, that is a big brain villain right there. I would have thought it would just be the human race in general for destroying the planet. That that too. Yeah. Right? That too. That too. Global warming. The biggest hey. the, the villain that is coming for all of us yeah. one day. Anyways. Wally is basically just a villain's film. Kyle, what are some miss the dance for you? Yeah, the first one is uh water noose. From Monsters Inc., the CEO of Monsters Inc., who is corroborating with another villain that we are going to have on this bracket to really slime his way into profit by stealing the screams of children, and he's on the inside job of it all. And to when you're the leader, you're you're the ringleader of this event. That makes you not a great person and a pretty good villain because you're kind of operating in the shadows, especially when you're living this double life of presenting yourself as this well-meant-to-do person, and yet you have this villainous backside. And, and that's Water Noose. And the second one for me is The Underminer. And The Underminer from The Incredibles <laughs> 1 and 2 makes a great villain because he's one of the few that don't get got. A lot of these villains in Pixar he get escapes, got, yeah. but he shows up, he causes 
chaos. He robs a bank and then he disappears. And that's all we got from the underminer. He, he does his job. He's that's a great villain. He executed it as a villain should, which is getting the job done and getting off free. So shout out to the underminer. Uh, Julia, do you have any miss the dance, any Pixar villains that you can think of that you think should be on this bracket? Um, I, I, oh my gosh, I love the outside of the box thinking though. <laughs> yeah. Like that's awesome. Like the human race. Like I wish that was one of them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad we got Waternoose's name out there because in addition to like the everyday villain that's often present in Pixar, it's the Pixar villains are often like hiding in plain sight, right? Totally. Where it's like, you don't realize they're a villain until the end of the movie or, uh, you know, you, you know, there's a villain, you just don't know who they are yet. And then they eventually reveal themselves. Uh, and so, so yeah, Waternoose is a, is a great example of that. All right, Chris, we have the Miss the Dance. Let's go ahead and introduce this bracket of 16 and get this episode underway. Let's cue that dramatic music. You go ahead and start us off. The number one seed is about to light it up like it's night. No, Mike, because it's <laughs> Sid from Toy Story. Flying in from the bug eat bug world is Hopper from A Bug's Life. They say never meet your heroes. And the number three seed is proof. From The Incredibles, it's Syndrome. Smelling like strawberry at the number four seed is Lotso from Toy Story 3. Slithering his way to the five spot is Randall from the Monsters, Inc. universe. Jumping out the box at the six seed is Stinky Pete from Toy Story 2. Happy Father's Day to the seventh seed from the Toy Story franchise, it's Emperor Zurg. Crushing dreams and getting crushed by bells at the number eight seed is Ernesto de la Cruz from Coco. Brace yourself. The number nine seed is Darla from Finding Nemo. Missing his daddy at the number 10 seed is Brutes from Finding Nemo. When this blimp's a rockin', don't come a knockin'. From up, the number 11 seed is Charles Muntz. Kachiga! Crossing the finish line at the number 12 seed is Chick Hicks from Cars. L plus ratio for the 13th seed from Luca, Ercole Visconti. Roaring at the 14th seed is Mardo from Brave. France's favorite foodie comes in at number 15 from Ratatouille. It's Anton Ego. And puppeteering at the 16th seed and routing out this bracket is Gabby Gabby from Toy Story 4. All right, Julia, take a look at that bracket. Some of these matchups. Are there any initial ones that you're looking forward to breaking down here? Oh, my gosh. Well, I have to say, I freaking love Sid. <laughs> me, and my, me and my siblings used to, like, quote him all the time. When his mom is like, Sid, your Pop-Tarts are ready. He's like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he also like nailed it. We got Sid in the studio right now. So funny. I for, Yeah, I freaking love Sid. We just used to talk like him. Hey. Um, and I just, I love, I love sharks in general. And oh. I love a villain who's like kind of trying not to vill. So <laughs> wow. I love Bruce. Try not to vill. Sometimes it, it overtakes them. In fact, a lot of these it overtakes them. Uh, Chris, we got the Sid house over there. So I'm going to let you take this number one matchup here. 
Sid. Um, well, we'll start by talking about Gabby Gabby, um, okay. I guess. Sorry not to kind of pivot the Sid hype, but um, Gabby Gabby's from Toy Story 4, and uh, I I don't remember Toy Story 4 a lot. I think I think we saw it in the village for like five bucks sure. when, it, when it had been out for like a long time and they were basically no one in the theater. Yeah. Um, so I had to kind of revisit the movie, had to revisit Gabby Gabby to kind of reassess who she is and, and why she's a villain. And I kind of honestly came up short a little bit on the Gabby Gabby being a villain just because Woody kind of chooses to negotiate with her, which is yeah. very like not a villain thing to happen in a Disney movie. So to break it down for you, for those of you that don't remember, very briefly, hopefully, Gabby Gabby lives in an antique store. She was uh, made with a defective speaker box, so she never got played with, ever. And she's waiting for a girl that she sees come into the antique store. It's like the owner's daughter. And she thinks that if she has a working speaker box that she will get played with and get taken home. So she wants Woody's speaker box so that she can make this dream happen. She is very creepy. I will say Gabby, Gabby Gabby at her creepiest is as creepy as any of them. No, oh, a thousand percent. Um, she talks very creepily. She's dressed in kind of the old Victorian sort of outfit. Uh, she commands an army of Bensons. Uh, <laughs> just the idea of living in an antique store is is pretty like creepy and, and weirdly chilling. Um, but basically she gets Woody up against a wall and she has Forky hostage and Woody says, all right, you can have my speaker box. I just want, I just want Forky back. And he's yeah. like, she's like, okay. So she gets speaker box and then she doesn't get played with. She doesn't she work not out. Want it anyway. And, she not want it. and then, so like a true villain in that situation would be like, all right, well, if, I'm not getting played with. No one's getting played with. You know, kind of pull like a Lotso Hugs Bear. But then she sure. like, she turns face and then like Woody helps her out and then she gets found by a crying little kid at the fair. So it's just kind of like she starts out on this villain trajectory and then never actually reaches her full villainous potential. It is kind of like really gross the idea of like i want the speaker box inside you and i'm gonna take it out like that's yeah. definitely kind of like creepy and edgy <laughs> but i just i don't know when i think about her being a villain it's like half the story so i mean i know we're hyping up sid and and i want to talk about him but i think we should just save him and talk about him on the next episode because i i got him advancing here like very easily almost by default i want to give a little bit more detail to Gabby Gabby because I think that her creepiness doesn't just come from some of the the actions that she takes but also these antique dolls in and of itself are creepy any anything from this like mid-century doll making era is very creepy because you're reaching this odd uncanny valley between these look fairly realistic like young children but they're obviously like small often porcelain and they look obviously like dolls but they also look like they could come alive at night and uh hop off the dresser and slit your throat 
And Yabby Yabby looks like that, let alone the Bensons. The Bensons are these uh, uh, ventriloquist dummies that are obviously very reminiscent of the dummy from Twilight Zone. So that Twilight Zone episode already ingrained in all of pop culture's minds that ventriloquist dummies are creepy. And so to have the Bensons as these henchmen, which is a very villainous thing to do. You, you have henchmen that to give her a point for, for villainy right there. But they're also slightly mindless and they don't speak. So they're, they're these un, it's the unpredictableness of the Bensons that also add to the kind of overall villainy of Gabby Gabby for me. Gabby Gabby has these manipulative factors to her that help her achieve what she needs. And I think like villains that get what they need, it doesn't make them any less villainous than anybody else. But where Gabby falls for me is the fact that she is reconciled in the end and saved. And I want to see these villains die. I want to see these villains go down. That's what I like out of like a villain. The heroes win, the villains lose. Not the heroes win, the villains learn a lesson. Get out of here with that Toy Story 4. Sid... He doesn't die, but he definitely learns his lesson. And we see later on that like he he's taken this trajectory of appearing in the later films, maybe, or somebody just happens to have the same shirt that, that Sid wore as a kid. I don't know that Sid's wearing the same shirt 20 years later, but uh, here he is as a, a sanitation worker on one of the sanitation trucks. He doesn't die. He continues his life and maybe he's had some reform and isn't going to torture things and toys so uh, i'm gonna agree with you with the high seed moving on here with sid julia i can already assume that you're happy with this pick because you come from a sid household nope that's good sid all the way (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna move on to this next matchup it's number eight ernesto de la cruz versus number nine darla let's talk let's talk about darla here's a character that gets no shine here on the podcast we don't talk a ton about Darla. We've talked about Finding Nemo. We've talked about scenes in Finding Nemo. We've talked about sad moments in Finding Nemo. We've talked about the score of Finding Nemo. But we haven't really spent any time with Darla. Darla is uh, Dr. Sherman's niece. Uh, she often celebrates her birthday with her uncle. And most every birthday, her uncle gives her a fish. And when she gets the fish, she is often very cruel to it and ends up killing it before it makes it home. Uh, He delivers these fish into plastic bags to give to her to hold on to. She wants the fish to be a little bit more active, so she starts shaking it. And as we all know, you can't do that to a fish in a baggie. You will kill it. So she's kind of labeled by the dentist office aquarium as a fish killer. In the movie, when we meet her, she's turning eight. So she's, she's young. She's a young child. But what I will say about her kind of maturity level is that it feels like it's a lot younger than eight. She walks into the dentist's office and she sits down and she's acting very giddy and she's very hyper. And she makes this uh, comment about her being a, a piranha from the Amazon. And it's like that feels some, like something a six-year-old might say to you. Maybe not necessarily somebody that's, that's eight or turning eight. Also, my perception of children is very skewed. I don't know how old kids are and how they're supposed to act because I don't stay around them. I don't want to be near them and I don't want them near me. So maybe this is how an eight-year-old acts. Eight is third grade. Like, that's pretty... 
I would say they might do that no. if okay. they were, if, you know, maybe they had some sugar on the way to the dentist and they're feeling a little bit crazy, but I would say once they, once they hit seven, the, the high side of seven is when you start shedding that immature skin a little bit. A little bit, a little yeah. bit. It come, it still comes out, baby. Like it's okay. still there. It's her birthday. Hey, it's her I'm birthday. known to She's sit excited. down in dentist chairs and, and <laughs> get a little bit weird. Like it happens still. <laughs> shout out getting weird in dentist chairs. Hey, shout and out just... to Scott Pope in Walnut Creek. <laughs> <laughs> the nuts dentist. The nuts. Hey, I gotta go see the Pope. That's what I say. <laughs> oh my god. So Darla shows up, and and really, what is the most villainous? aspect of Darla is how the film portrays her from a fish's yeah. vantage point, right? She she enters the the dentist's office by slamming the door open, as kids do, but to the the tune of the psycho theme from yes. Alfred Hitchcock Just with the, the strings. <laughs> and so the fish are freaking out. Maybe she didn't enter like that. Maybe the door slightly slammed and that's just what the fish imagined was happening. But that's how we see her. And so she comes in hyper as ever. Nemo's in a bag. Nemo's trying to get out a bag. He can't. Uh, She sits down. uh, Dr. Sherman is like, I got I got some for you and gives her the fish. She's super excited. She has it in the in the bag. Nemo plays dead. Darla starts shaking the out of that bag. Nemo's going up and down, up and down, and the fish in the tank uh, set up this evil Knievel type cannon with Mount Wanahakalugi and send Gil on top of Darla's head, who instantly freaks out, causes chaos. We have uh, the pelican, whose name I don't remember, comes storming in. Nigel the pelican, man. Come on. Our best Disney bird, bro. What are you? That guy's a Hall of Famer. Hey, hey. Watch out for that seagull from the live action Pinocchio. That might be taking the crown as the best (laughs) Disney bird. (laughs) <laughs> and chaos ensues. Nemo gets freed. The fish get put back into the tank and eventually they make their way out. But that's about all that we get out of Darla. She has That's her revenge moment. That is the villain being defeated in that moment. So we spend four minutes with her. That's Darla. She's, she's a fun character. She's an, an iconic Pixar character, I will say. Everybody knows who Darla is when you say Darla. She has some sort of legend w- attached to her. It's great. But she's up against Ernesto de la Cruz, who literally killed somebody. Uh, killed somebody for their music. Uh, is living this double life, not only while he's literally, literally alive, but also while he's in the land of the dead after he has passed by getting crushed by a bell. He gets killed again, double killed by a bell as he's in the land of the dead. Uh, this character, we've talked about him quite a bit recently, so I don't really think I need to go into detail as to who he is, but he is a villain. He he shows up currently in the parks at, at Oogie Boogie's Bash because of his villainous legend. He's a he's a great Pixar villain. Number eight has to move on past Darla. And the, you know, the best part about Ernesto is is like, yeah, he's this kind of external villain where he committed a murder. <laughs> which he, he's in rare company in the Disney universe when you've actually committed a murder. Yes. Um, and, and in addition to that, kind of the way we talked about him, uh, we were talking about on-screen musical acts. He's a thief. Uh, he steals uh, other people's work, which is, which is not cool in the creative fields. Yeah. Uh, and he was really relying on Hector to, to kind of support his version of success 
and it really didn't have anything to do with artistry for him. It was really all about the fame and, uh, you know, the adoration, the attention. I mean, that was kind of his version of success and he's still milking it, man, <laughs> over that Marigold bridge. He is the king king of the, of that, uh, afterlife, uh, which is kind of weird to me. I don't really, I don't know. Like, is he, I don't, I guess know enough about the afterlife in this kind of belief system, but like, is there like an entity above Ernesto de la Cruz or is he like <laughs> the top, right? Is he like the Jesus of the afterlife. I don't know. I think maybe Jesus is just a big Ernie fan and he's like, you know could what? Be. Yeah, you, he, you, could be. you take the mansion on top of the hill. Yeah. I think Ernesto really represents more than just like an external villain. He represents this idea that should be villainized. This idea that we don't know anyone. <laughs> Really. Anything, anything about anyone. <laughs> and so when you see people on TV or you see someone on social media and you think that now that person right there, that's a nice person or that's a successful person or that's a person we need to look up to. That's a person we need to admire. You're really only getting bits and pieces of them. You're not even anywhere near getting the whole story. Uh, when you really look up to someone like that. And so the way that Miguel's love for Ernesto is, is shut down. That's kind of the death of that abstract villain. Yeah. Uh, in Coco. And so it's kind of like, Oh, Ernesto had the choice when he was alive to choose between fame and family. Ernesto believed the meaning of life was fame and not family. And that's how he's continuing on here. But that's ultimately his undoing, right? Uh, Miguel and his family bind together and so on and so forth. So um, I, I really like that about Ernesto. Darla, I think Darla seems like a very simple and straightforward villain, kind of like how I was talking about Al McWiggin, the everyday villain, you know, like this kid is annoying. <laughs> Sure, but really they're not affecting humanity in any major way. Um, they're killing fish, which is bad. We should not be killing fish. Um, fish are friends, but it's not out here poisoning sure. your bandmate. Sure. But on the other hand, maybe Darla and to an extent her uncle P as well, yeah, he's the Uncle enabler. P. Well, so like, <laughs> yeah, he's the real villain. I have personal, I have like a personal trauma from this. Oh, um, when my mom said we could finally get a pet, of course it was a fish. That was the first pet we had, and I was so excited to get one. And they put it in the bag, and when we got home, it was dead. So, like <laughs> when I like watch like the fish dying in Toy Story from Darla, I just like it like, makes me it makes me the, sick to my stomach. Almost, flash honestly. back to the backseat of that minivan when you yeah no literally. <laughs> The thing though is that like these are exotic fish. These are not pet store fish. Oh, right. And so I mean, P the, shouldn't be diving and grabbing clownfish yeah, to begin with. And right? so the way that P is just <laughs> scooping up 
exotic fishes from the ocean yeah, and get, and just giving them to his niece that he knows she's killing these fish. Yes. He knows. And he's still just like, eh, here you go. You can yeah. have it. Yeah. Um, and the, the way that Darla is so cavalier with these, these, these are living things. Um, I think that the combination of those two characters in the situation kind of, kind of represents the like, idea of the environmentalism, you know, mm. and the idea of like taking from the ocean, taking from the yes, environment. That's a, that's that. kind of a sub sure. sub theme of, of finding Nemo. And so when I look at Darla, I don't always just think, Oh, there's like a super annoying kid. I think, wow, there's a kid who is super spoiled and is causing global warming to be honest. So yeah. And that's hella annoying. As it's most kids global are. warming's annoying. Super you know? annoying. Um, so I don't like Coco. I've been on record saying this many yeah, times. We know. Uh Finding Nemo's in the rafters as our best Pixar movie. So I am going with Darla, which means <laughs> Julia is breaking Darla. a tie. Shoot, man. I'm torn too. Um, I wanna say you changed it for me when you said the whole global warming situation. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Darla's not scooping fish. That is true. That is true. But yeah. Okay. Honey, I'm sorry. <laughs> Almost. Um, I'm going to go with Ernesto de la Cruz because I revert back to my original thesis statement, which was they have a strong like a very strong motivation and Darla is just like, she's, she's essentially doing it unintentionally. So to sure. me, the better villain is Ernesto de la Cruz, even though I barely remember what he does. So. <laughs> it's fair. Coco is super forgettable movie. So, um, <laughs> all right, moving on. We have the number four seed Lotso Hugs Bear from Toy Story 3 versus number 13 Ercole Visconti from, hey. from Maluca. Um, I just would like to point out that I do have my little Ercole mustache going hey. on today. Yeah. It's, just for the episode. It's got the little catfish whisker. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's talk about our boy. Please. The pride of... Porto Rosso, Ercole. Um, so this is kind of a sleeper, I think, on this bracket. Um, dude is a real dick. Yeah. Um, and the like, his villain intro is very interesting because Alberto and Luca. They call him Senor Vespa because they see him riding this dope Vespa. Oh, and yeah. they they really want a Vespa. Like that's their whole motivation in the movie is they want a Vespa so they, they can ride together like Kanye and Kim. Mm-hmm. Off into the sunset. Bound to. <laughs> uh-huh, honey. So <laughs> you see him kind of cruise up into the town square, the glasses on, looking sharp, a little scarf around his neck, hair slicked back. Ray bands on, mm-hmm. um, and they're like, "Whoa, there he is! It's Senor Vespa. He's so sick." And then, 
And then the cop's like, oh God, this kid again. <laughs> and she says something in Italian. And then the priest comes out of the church and he's like, oh no, is it Ercole? <laughs> and then like some old lady comes out of the window and is like, oh no, mamma mia. <laughs> it's so funny that like uh, the, the little Italian element adds just like an additional element of humor, but totally, it's kind of funny to see the disparity between the way that he's perceived initially by Luca and Alberto and the way that clearly this whole town sees him. Um, yeah. He's the like cool older kid to the younger kids and he's the annoying troublemaker teenager to the rest of the town. Right. Um, and there are a lot of like power dynamics at play as, as you get deep into Luca and, um, the way that he kind of mentally manipulates uh, the rest of the kids and some of the adults even in in Porto Rosso. But his whole thing is just that he's super pretentious. Uh, yeah. And he calls himself the pride of Porto Rosso <laughs> uh, for winning this like objectively very meaningless community event yep. it's like a it's like a kid's triathlon. <laughs> and he's like, I'm with the pride of Porto Rosso. Yeah. Uh, which is really silly um, and again kind of makes him like the the everyday villain. You know, he's not uh, mustache twirling. Uh, not that he has much of a mustache to twirl, but mm -hmm. uh, he's he's kind of someone that you'd maybe expect to meet in real life. Uh, he's very gatekeepy, gatekeeper-y. He plays gatekeeper yeah. Yeah. in Porto Rosso. Uh, he's very much made it known that he doesn't want Alberto and Luca in Porto Rosso because he does not want outsiders. Uh, and he sees them as outsiders based on the way they're dressed and eventually even the fact that they're sea monsters makes them outsiders. So uh, he kind of leads that uh, that brigade against, against these two boys, which is very sad. Um, and eventually it's his undoing. He takes it a little bit too far when he tries to harpoon him in the face. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then eventually everyone turns on him and even his two cronies throw him in the fountain. So nice little, nice little sleeper villain, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, going up against lots of hugs. Toy Story 3, I think is a good movie. I've said it before. I think it's a little bit uh, overrated. Uh, Lotso has this like... I don't want to make this comparison, but I will anyway. Here we go. Um, Kim Jong-un. Oh, baby. The way that <laughs> he's created this closed off society at Sunnyside. Yes. Where nothing comes in, nothing goes out. Yes. He's and like a true just, dictator. If you just stay within the walls of Sunnyside, everything is okay. And you will be you treated are, great. Be we will make sure you are okay as long as you stay here and do what I say. And the evils of the world out there, Not gonna they're, touch they're so bad. And Not they're so touch. bad. Like you you need me to keep you safe from those things. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got the surveillance state thing going on with the <laughs> monkey with the symbols. Shout He's out to up, the monkey. Another He's villain. up in that booth. Uh, you got big baby, the muscle. Big uh, baby. They have this. They have this like complex, like torture method where they get you in a chair, and he's got like a whole crew of of people to like disseminate information out of you. Very, very Guantanamo of oh, lots. Yeah. And uh, I mean, ultimately, like, who's the most dangerous thing in Sunnyside? Lotso himself. Like, mm -hmm. nothing outside the walls of the preschool are more dangerous than the man in charge. <laughs> yep. I think that I like the, the, the normalness of Ercole 
I like that he feels real, but the just how detailed Lotso's uh, methods are and in how much he's bought into his own delusion makes him really interesting to me and like very mentally complex. So I have to go with Lotso here. And the fact that Lotso has shown up to this daycare and really just taken it over. It's not like he was born within the daycare and rose yeah, to yeah. to rule. He had this very traumatic experience that brought him there. And now he's ruling out of spite. Like Lotso gets abandoned. He can't get played with. So no one can. No one can have a true owner if I can't. To the outside world, you're just going to end up in a landfill. Like, what do you need? And they he tries to put them in a landfill and he en- himself ends up in one. And so his ability to kind of reign out of spite, but have that that inviting feeling to him still. He brings people in, makes you feel comfortable, and then locks you in and doesn't let you leave. Very villainous of him. Uh, he rules out of fear. That is that is a big evil villain type of trope. So I agree with you lots. So we'll, we'll dive further into him and his antics next time. Julia, did you have Air Collet going here or were you a, a Lotso hugging bear? Absolutely not. Um, I'm... <laughs> Definitely Team Lotso. Um, just recalling Toy Story 3, I think it's super terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, like, after watching Toy Story, I literally thought every single one of my stuffed animals and toys was alive. <laughs> and so, like, just the thought of, like, this, like, evil bear is just, like, ooh, hate it. Hate it so yeah. much. So definitely Lotso. Yeah. I mean, credit to Pixar for doing exactly what they did to you to a lot of us, which is consider our our toys' feelings through it all. Yeah, I literally can't give any of them away because I still think (laughs) they're like in my bedroom right now, like having like powwows and like talking and like living a life. So I'm I just I I can't. I I literally can't. We still have some here, actually. So they're probably having a powwow right now. Probably. probably. They're like, when's Julia gonna come back? (laughs) Yeah, we've got like a baby Sven and we have so we have baby Sven and then we have like the gremlin are out there just corroborating about (laughs) exactly. And we even have grown up Sven. So it's like baby Sven and grown up Sven. But anyway. It's got it's current buzz and old buzz. I am a twenty nine year old woman and I still sleep with stuffed animals. So. Hey, listen, you should see the madness that is our bedroom as well. We got hey, we got the yeah. stuff. When, when she says we, she she, <laughs> she like means we, but but I mostly I. me. Did I, say we? I think you said we, but <laughs> oh, that's okay. I yeah, that's okay. That's okay. We we are all baby Sven's parents here. Okay, he, okay. he belongs yeah. to all of us. All right, let's move on to this next <laughs> matchup. The final one on the side of the brackets. Number five, Randall from Monsters Inc. versus number twelve chick hicks and i think it's the fact that i feel so far removed from the cars fandom even though i really enjoy that first movie the net the other ones you care less about but the first one i feel like is pretty good couldn't tell you who chicks hicks was before this because it feels like lightning mcqueen is his own villain throughout the entire film this is a a finding yourself type of film and he's awful in most of it and so you you hate him for a lot of the film until the end once he realizes it's not all about winning chicks hicks is what happens when it's all about winning so he is the the green race car with 
every sponsorship sticker you could ever have encasing his shell. He has a like a the front grill of his car is so that it looks like a mustache. So you can kind of assume that he has this big bushy mustache uh, and he is very into himself. He's extremely narcissistic. He is very crass in the most Pixar crass way you can really be in 2006 or whenever this film came out. Uh, he is a bully on the racetrack. He is talking trash and not in the competitive spirit way. He is talking trash mostly after or before the races and he is taking digs anywhere that he can. On the racetrack, he's the worst. Uh, everyone's racing a fair race and he's out here bumping cars, causing pileups. He's causing spinouts. He he gets a little over aggressive in the final race of the Piston Cup at the end of the first film, almost spins out himself. He takes the dub, but just like uh, Air Calais, he kind of has the world turn on him when he, the world realizes how dirty he races. And as I was watching a lot of these chicks hick scenes i couldn't help but like compare it to if these if these weren't cars if this wasn't the cars world and people are running track and like tripping others to cause pileups one how devastatingly awful it would be for anyone who took a fall like you are getting extremely injured in this car scenes cars are airborne dog <laughs> he is like bumping people and then they take flight so it's this is nothing to to bat your eye at. This is awful tactics that he has, and he's getting away with it. He's loud. Uh, he adopts Lightning McQueen's kachow and makes his own kachuga, which is extremely annoying to see <laughs> on screen, but adds to his villainy. Like it's yeah. that Ernesto de la Cruz thing where you're kind of adopting something and making it, claiming it as your own, and that's both annoying and stealing creative license. And we, we hate that around here. So he's a nuisance. He is, as the kids would say, a menace in the worst way. Don't like Chick Hicks a ton. He's a great villain for the, for the racing scene, but I'm, I just don't know that he plays a big of a part in the overall Cars universe as like Lightning McQueen is his own villain, in my opinion. But you have somebody like Randall over in Monsters, Inc., who is that kind of shifty, conniving coworker. We all know Randall. Don't really need to describe who this is, but he's the, the purple chameleon-like lizard monster. And his whole thing in the, in the film is much like Chick Hicks. He wants to be on top, and he's going to do whatever it takes to be on top. So much so that he devises a machine that will extract screams out of children one by one that he plans to kidnap so that he can fuel and boost and pad his, his rankings on the scare floor, which is cheating's not good. We don't like it. It's not, I don't think you're a villain for cheating. I think you're an idiot for cheating. But I think that in the, the method of cheating can turn you into a villain. In here, this feels like you're probably a villain. If you're stealing things and people to pad your stats, that's not good. At least, you know, Randall's not banging on trash cans uh, down right. the, behind the door. And, hey, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, he, he may be getting some signs as to which cards are, are the best, the hot the hot doors with the multiple <laughs> kids in a sleepover, but he's hey, hey, this. Everyone knows the scare trophy is just a piece of metal, right? 
And it seems like uh, if it wasn't up to the community itself, he was going to go unscathed. He, they had to literally throw him. They had to beat him up in order for him to deserve his punishment. The The city wasn't going to take any action on it. So what we're saying is Randall is basically the 2017 Houston Astros. Randall is the 2017 Houston Astros, and he was getting away with it. Everyone kind of had a sneaking suspicion that he was a little bit guilty of something, but no one really knew what it was until what? He was caught on camera. And Water News (laughs) exposes the entire operation because he's on camera talking about it. Uh, And and now we know that it was a a whole inside job. So Randall, uh, throughout the film, is really scary. He he is able to sneak up on people because he can blend into the environment. He is very rude to our heroes, Mike and Sully. He's calling them names. He's threatening them. He is kidnapping or plans to kidnap kids. He plans to extract the scream out of Boo, which what we see out of his sidekick, Mr. Jeff Fungus, uh, it <laughs> seems like it sucks the life out of you. <laughs> like, he had no color in his skin after that. I had no idea he had a first name. I thought it his, was just Fungus. but <laughs> So I typed in today, I was like, what is Randall's sidekick's name? So I typed into Google and the first thing, the the Google search pops up with like the, the snapshot of the Wikipedia. It's Jeff Fungus. <laughs> My name's Jeff Fungus. <laughs> so... So he's operating a very dangerous piece of machinery here that could potentially kill people. But his motive is selfish. And that, I think, really adds to his villainy is that he's not doing anything for the greater good. You think of like a Killmonger in Marvel, which is this villain that people are like, "Mm, I kind of see his point. That's not Randall here. This is him trying to be the top dog and be the top dog and produce more screams so that the power outages around Monstropolis stop happening so that water news is off the hook, which is why water news is also involved in this. At the end of the day, the day he gets his uh, Sully and Mike uh, throw a, a little one, two count slider and throw him through a door that he gets locked in ends up at a trailer park, the trailer park from a bug's life. In fact, and uh, he ends up scaring a, a young kid who calls his mom and his mom wants that shovel and he gets the beat out of him by grandma's shovel so uh he gets his in this matchup i think that i have to lean towards randall because i think that he causes a little bit more chaos for the world his selfishness while it's comparable to chick hicks uh, and and they both cause a lot of harm to the people around him I think that Randall's legacy has a little bit more impact on the entire population as opposed to Chicks Hicks impact on maybe just the racing game. I really like the way that Chick Hicks's story kind of wraps up in Cars 1 where he wins the Piston Cup and nobody cares. Yeah. It's like this moment where they're having the 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 three man race or three mm-hmm. car race, sorry, and um, the king crashes the old guy, and lightning's about to win, but he stops short of the finish line. 
The crowd is silent. It's like, bro, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Chick speeds past him, crosses the finish line first. No one reacts. Lightning goes back to save the king and has him finish in second place. And Chick's basically like, how come no one's cheering for me and everyone's cheering for Lightning McQueen? So I agree that Randall's like the stakes are obviously much bigger. I just like the way that from a story perspective, Chick Hicks plays this like perfect foil to the character that lightning becomes where you kind of see lightning starting to display these traits of Chick when he's starting his racing journey where he's very self-centered, he's very showy. He really cares a lot about the sponsors and the money and the fame. And like, this is Chick Hicks getting, he's getting there. He got to Dynaco first. So he's been hobnobbing with the execs. He got the twin car chicks uh, that he's hanging out with. You know, he got, he won the piston cup and in the, in the post race presser, he's like, where's my piston cup? And they like, (laughs) they basically like throw Throw it at him. (laughs) He's like, where's my confetti? And they like blow confetti (laughs) in his face. Um, And they basically boo him off stage, uh, which is, I don't know. I think a pretty cool, like moment of realization for not just lightning, but like us, the viewer that like, you know, winning is sometimes a matter of perspective. Sure. Um, I I, I will, I will say that chicks, chick Hicks comes back into the cars. universe. He sure does. He becomes a a commentator, a a racing Mm -hmm. commentator, and (laughs) he never stops clowning lightning McQueen whenever he gets a chance on air to do so. No. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, Randall has a pretty great character design and like, you know, I love me some Steve Buscemi, but I I was going to say, he just looks like Steve Buscemi as a lizard. Sure. (laughs) I think I'm going to go with Chick Hicks here though. I I really like, I really like this kind of story element and the way that he is a villain who, who basically succeeds uh, and gets what he was after in the end. Um, It just wasn't as effective as he hoped it would be to, our hero. So Julia, you're breaking another tie here. Um, Chick Hicks. I just, for some reason, I keep thinking of Talladega Nights and I keep <laughs> thinking of, I keep equating him to whatever that Italian driver is who had a green car in Talladega Nights. Yeah. So that's where my mind goes with Chick Hicks, but ultimately I'm choosing Randall because he's harming children. So and I am not about that whatsoever. I think that's pure evil. Um, so my pick is Randall. No more big Hicks energy on this bracket. Oh, <laughs> uh, we are, we are, we are, it took a second over here. We are hopping over to the other side of the bracket where we have a juggernaut matchup. Here we go. We have the number two seed Hopper. From a bug's life versus number 15, Anton Ego from Ratatouille. Now, we talked about Anton Ego a lot a while ago when we were talking best on screen Disney food and we were talking about Remy's Ratatouille. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anton Ego, a very renowned food critic in France, uh, he reads in the newspaper that this restaurant Gusto's is, is starting to start popping off and Gusto's uh used to pop off but then he kind of sold out 
Uh, and Anton Ago's last review, he said, uh, <laughs> Chef Gusteau belongs next to Chef Boyardee, which, bro. <laughs> got him, bro. Got him. Absolute savage. That is, that, is a, that is a restaurant roast if I've ever Yikes. seen one. Um, but uh, we talk about we talked about how uh, Remy serves this ratatouille to Anton Ego. Ratatouille, a very simple dish. Uh, it's basically just thinly sliced vegetables uh, arranged and with some sauce on it. Uh, they call it a peasant's dish in the film, uh, and it dude, it sends our boy back in time. It slaps him back into therapy, baby. He uh, remembers why he ended up the way he did. So. God. The the lead up to that moment is really important, I think, to remember because Anton Ego walks into this establishment and basically says, well, he walks in one time and he basically is like, bro, bro, you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I'm winning. Yep. So mm-hmm. uh, he, he kind of like verbally threatens uh, Linguini. And then walks out, and then he's like, "All right, I'm going to review this joint again." Walks back in, and then our boy John Ratzenberger, waiter, can't remember his names at the table, and Anton Ego says, "I would like some perspective." <laughs> uh, and the waiter's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." He's like, "I want some perspective." No one knows what that means. And then basically, he's like, "All right, I want whatever your chef dares to serve me." Yep. Which is like such a power move. Um, And it's like, he's so angry, you know? And I think we kind of have to like unpack why he's so angry about this. I mean, I guess the, the simplest response would be just that he cares so much. Yes. You know, like this is, this is important. Like he feels insulted by the way that this restaurant is suddenly popping off. So like, okay, so why is he so insulted about it? Well, it's very personal for him. And the way that this kind of new place, this new vibe is kind of encroaching on his territory is starting to make him territorial and get a little bit defensive, start lashing out, making threats, Mm -hmm. going in here, trying to reestablish his dominance. Um, And it all comes from, a place of sadness deep down when he goes back in time. Uh, he's from the countryside. He's from the French yeah. countryside and there's pain in his eyes when he walks through the door as a little kid and his mama, his mama serves him some ratatouille that mm, so good. Cures uh, it all up. Yeah. Really? The only thing, you know, from that 10 seconds we got in Ant- the past of Anton Ego, the one thing that could make him feel better was his mother's cooking. And so that's why this whole thing is so personal to him. And I think that's just a really great villain backstory. Um, It all kind of comes back to insecurity uh, and it comes back to the pains of your past. I think that's everyone's villain arc eventually. Sure. Um, just uh, just for feelings or, or situations that were left unreconciled and you're still trying to redeem yourself from them. And so that's written all over Anthony Go and, and he does it. I mean, I know, Kyle, you talk about wanting your villains to get theirs. Uh, ego does not get his ego has some big brain, big, big <laughs> ego energy. Yeah. When he's like, you know what? That was bomb. 
and let me write the most poetic oh review. Oh my God, so <laughs> good. Poetry, by the way, performed by Peter O'Toole, one of the yep. greatest screen actors of all time. Yep. Uh, I, I love Ego. I mean, from from the moment I saw this character when I was like a teenage boy, I was like, this is such a good character. Very complex, and I like the way that he uh, he changes over the course of the film. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're talking about Ratatouille, you can definitely throw your chef's hat in the ring for Chef Skinner being like the true villain of the film because totally. he's definitely, I think on a, on a day-to-day level, more involved in the, um, you know, cook blocking of, of Remy, <laughs> but, uh, the, the Anton ego performance is second to none. Sure. Um, had to just give ego that little, that little shout out, that little rant. Um, uh, he's going down in this round, unfortunately, because <laughs> Hopper is, is so good. Gosh, he's good. And A bug's from, life in general, man. Well, what a yeah. film. For me, it's it's a lot of the same reasons why I like Lotso. It's not just a beef with one person, or it's not just being in the way of one situation. Like this man has an entire system that he's created that is apparently like being held by a thread and oh, yeah. he is doing the absolute most to make sure that that thread does not snap. He probably didn't even set up the systems. He doesn't even know how yeah, they make it happen, right? Like they're, they've been so scared into figuring out what system can they create to fulfill the need of Hopper while he's out in Mexico for half the year, boozing it up with his bros under a sombrero and comes back and is like, if there's food, there's food. If there's not, they're not. But I'm not going to fix your system. You're just going to figure it out. That's some craziness. Well, that 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 speech Hopper gives in Mexico is insane. It's so- he's he's getting a massage from a centipede on a bullet. <laughs> Hopper is laying on a bullet and he's getting rubbed out by by the centipede. <laughs> And meanwhile, okay, meanwhile, there's like a, there's like a team of mosquito servants, Mm -hmm. which like opens my brain up. I'm like, okay, if they got the ants on one hand, do they have the mosquitoes on the other hand too? Like, what's the deal with the mosquitoes? Like, seriously, how are they getting them? Um, so someone says one of the, one of the guys at the bar gets molt to be like, oh yeah, like, do we even need to go back to Ann Island? Like, yeah, we got everything yeah, here. Yeah, you said you don't even like grain and that just <laughs> shut him off and he's like, it's not about the grain. Crazy. I don't even want the food. I want power and control. That's all I care about. That, that visual, oh, that man. visual where he's throwing the single seeds at the grasshopper buddies, he opens the like floodgates like that yep. is such a good like moment where like the, the villain and the, like the conflict, like it comes together in this way that just like, like that's Ugh. hook, line and sinker on Bugs Life right there. And, and right when he, he punches the little hamster feeder of grain and the camera stays on him but you don't see the grain like building up. You just see him staring at them as they get engulfed in the grain. Yeah. That is, that is in my mind for the rest of my life. I love that scene. It's so good. He says, if they figure it out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping them in line. Oh, 
got to preserve that way of life. Hey, reasonable, <laughs> bro. That way of life looks sick, dude. <laughs> hey, man, I'm trying to be like that. I'm trying to achieve that hopper status, to be honest. Uh, Yeah, it's hopper definitely for me. Yeah, dude, it's hopper. We can talk more about I love talking about Bugs Life. Julia, any issue with this this grasshopper moving on here? No, none whatsoever. I don't know. His performance just reminds me of like some of the great villains and like even like Shakespeare and like other franchises. Like yeah. it's very like Shakespearean or Machiavellian, if you will, in a way. Um, but yeah, he's like a Tywin Lannister or like a <laughs> You don't get the reference, of course, but no. he's like a Tywin Lannister or like, I don't know, even like a Voldemort where it's just like, I don't know. Bug's Life based on Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Uh, mm. So I don't really mm-hmm. know like if there's a character comparison in uh, that film, but it definitely is much more like overtly about like feudalism and like classism yes. and stuff. So a lot of it is borrowed and it is an old movie, so it should have that classic feel to it. So shout out to Akira Kurosawa, one of the great filmmakers of all time. Absolutely. All right, this next matchups number seven, Emperor Zerg from Toy Story 2 versus number 10, Bruce the Shark from Finding Nemo. This is kind of like a, a toss-up for me, only because I don't see either of these being really the villains of their films. Bru- the, the issue with Finding Nemo is that there are so many characters, it's, it's the Odyssey, right? There are so many characters and barriers for our heroes to get through that there is no villain except for what holds them back themselves. And so Bruce is really a flash in the pan moment, not only because there's not a lot of time we get with Bruce, but because he happens at the very beginning of the film. So we get through Bruce and then there's a lot of chaos that happens in between him and everybody else. Bruce the shark, he we we know him, we love him. Another one of those kind of iconic Pixar characters, but he is the leader of the Fish Friendly Sharks group, which is kind of this Alcoholics Anonymous type of group that comes and meets and gets over their addiction to eating fish, uh, which is it's silly. It's funny. And Dory and Marlin encounter them uh, right as they're about to have their meeting. They run into Bruce. Bruce wants to bring them as his honorary guests because they're supposed to bring one to that meeting. And uh, and he does. And so Bruce is leading the, the meeting. All of the funny bits happen in between. But at one point, uh, he, Dory and, and Marlin are kind of fighting over the mask to figure out where they're supposed to go. And Dory gets bonked on the nose. She starts bleeding and that brings Brucey boy back. He gets one sniff of that and his natural instincts kick in. He gets that glass over the eyes. His eyes turn completely black and he's in in feeding frenzy mode. So the rest of the time with Bruce is really just him chasing the fish around (laughs) an old nuclear submarine surrounded by all of these undersea mines. Uh, he chases them around. They escape. Uh, he tosses a torpedo towards a mine. The mine explodes, and we can only assume that the sharks explode with him. I, like we don't really get anything after that. Bruce is gone. We never see him again. Uh, Bruce, named after the shark in Jaws, mm-hmm. the the 
robotic shark they gave the name of Bruce. So it's a nice little film callback. And I love me some Jaws. Uh, he, he's a great character. He's a, a wonderful stop on our journey to finding Nemo. And he's scary. Sharks are scary. That's a big part of being a villain is per- perceived intimidation. And he gives that just by being a shark and having that many teeth and his big grin and, and his unpredictability once he goes into full shark mode turns him into quite the villain. But he is, at the end of the day, just kind of a shark that is a stop on their journey. And then you have Zerg. Zerg we get in Lightyear, and we're not going to talk about that Zerg because, wow, but we're going to talk about the Toy Story 2 Zerg, who we get introduced as kind of this like obvious Darth Vader character in the world of wherever Buzz came from. And then in this Toy Story 2 world, he's the big boss of a video game. He is a toy that is on his way to want to defeat Buzz uh, at, towards the end of his chase. Like, we don't get a ton of interaction with Zerg. He's really following our gang through the film until they finally encounter him towards the climax of the movie, in which it's revealed that Zerg in this moment is Buzz's dad. Like, at least that's the part that he plays uh, to make a, a full circle Star Wars reference. And then he he's redeemed. He's reconciled at the end. He's playing catch with Buzz. Buzz has to go. And we leave, we leave Zerg at the end of yeah. Toy Story 2. I don't uh, because even think it's at the end. I think it's like at the end of that scene. Right. At the end of that, what we think is the villainous moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we get more of the villainy as the film goes on. So it's, a, it's another spark in the pan. Flash in the pan with zerg just like it is with bruce spark in the pan spark in the flash flash in the pan i think is the phrase let's not spark in the pan well it could be a spark in the pan it was literally that quick i'm gonna go with bruce here bruce the shark i'm gonna take as the one that moves on because he is scary and he has some real life implications to him that if he caught up to these fish he would do some damage Uh, It's very obvious that the toys, while they are afraid of Zerg and what he can do, they're not that afraid of him because at the end, Buzz befriends him and and they can kind of coexist. But he doesn't pose an actual threat other than just stopping them from saving Woody and the gang. Uh, Bruce could end lives. (laughs) And unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately he doesn't. Uh, and he gets his at the end. He gets blowed up. So, so in this matchup of a toss up, I'm going to go with Bruce. Um, yeah, I think Zerg. I think Zerg is uh, is a joke. Like the Zerg in Toy Story Two. If we're talking about the Toy Story Two movie Zerg, it was a Star Wars joke, and yeah. and that's it. Yep. Uh, that's the beginning and the end of the character. There, I think him being on this bracket is more of a testament to kind of like the idea of Zerg. Uh, yes. He does exist in the Buzz Lightyear TV series. Um, he's the bad guy that you shoot at in the Buzz Lightyear attractions, uh, Astro Blaster, Space Ranger Spin. So like, I think when we think of villains in Pixar, we think of, well, who's fighting the hero and yes. Zerg, Zerg fights Buzz. Like that's, that's his villain. So when you dig into the details like we did, you you do see that like there's really not a whole lot here, at least not in in Toy Story two. So so I'm with you on that. I do wanna I do wanna call out his uh, 
his line uh, when they're saying goodbye to him and Buzz is like, I'm going to go play with my dad. <laughs> and he's, he says, great throws, son. That's my boy. Go long, Buzzy. <laughs> Super funny. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, I'm with you on Bruce advancing to the next round. Uh, Julia, you said that you're a big fan of sharks and a big fan of Bruce. Are you happy with this one here? so happy with this one um i'm so sad though i didn't know he died in the end that literally breaks my heart are we <laughs> sure that happens he no, gets but blown the, up the sea bottom gets blown up where he is so you could only so assume so sad yeah i mean i'm like notorious for thinking scary animals are cute so i actually love baby alligators so huge shark fan. all right let's move on to the next matchup <laughs> It's number three syndrome versus number 14 Mordu. Kyle, I think you had me start this whole episode because you wanted me to talk about Mordu first. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I'm the resident brave expert here on this podcast. So I'll go yep. ahead and uh, break down Mordu for those of you that don't remember who that character is that does appear in brave. Um, kind of a, I, like it is a primary antagonist, but it feels kind of like a secondary antagonist because Brave's a lot like the way we were talking about cars where the main villain is really kind of a situation and it's kind of a coming of age story for our character and they're really trying to sort some stuff out with themselves and their relationships, uh, specifically Merida's relationship with her mom. Uh, and so Mordu is kind of this like villain in the background always that really doesn't become a direct threat until the very ending of the movie. So the way that the story is told, it's very like a uh, medieval fantasy genre situation where the queen Merida's mom um, is like, there once was a, a kingdom far away and there was a... <laughs> Uh, king died and he had four sons and they <laughs> wanted to divide the kingdom but one son wanted it all for himself and then they the caused the kingdom to collapse and like that's really that's really what it was uh, and then Merida goes to like the witch's cabin and she says the witch is like oh yeah I, uh, I cast a spell on a guy one time wanted to change his fate too and uh, that's and I that. think he like went on to like kill a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't remember. And then <laughs> memory's so foggy. Eventually, Merida kind of puts it together that like the the problem child that caused the kingdom to fracture is the person who came to the witch and is now Mordu, who is like this mythical beast in the kingdom. Uh, Mordu takes King Fergus's leg in the prologue of Brave. Uh, so everyone's often kind of like fired up about like one day we're going to get more do like he's this elusive beast and he's huge and scary. Uh, and so eventually like more comes out at the end of the movie and Merida's mom in bear form kills him and, and that's <laughs> it. So uh, the spirit of the, of the prince is released and he has yep. this this look on his face when he's like released. It's kind of like a look of like thankfulness. And mm -hmm. then he goes away. And like that's all Mordu is in Brave. It's very like surface level. It feels like there could have been a lot more there. Um, and they actually do go into detail. Uh, there's a Mordu short. I don't know if you've uh, ever seen that one, Kyle. No. But 
basically Game of Thrones used to put out these histories and lore shorts that would accompany the seasons of the show just because the series a lot. Re- yeah the series relied on so many like things that happen in the books and so basically they put these shorts together to help people understand so uh this mordu thing is a lot like that it's like uh it's like animated in this kind of simple sort of storybook way and there's like a narrator talking about the history of of the lore syndrome is definitely advancing yeah. in this matchup i love the idea of some lore i love me some medieval fantasy i love me some brave but i think when we're talking about pixar villains uh syndromes is a, is a three seed for a reason um syndrome has a personal relationship with the hero, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible in The Incredibles. Uh, we see him meet Bob when he's just a little kid. Uh, and that relationship incubates a little bit over the years. There's a time jump uh, and sit and buddy as syndrome buddy. eventually becomes the, the primary antagonist in The Incredibles. And there's a lot of like deep emotional stakes in it for syndrome. And there's some, some darkness in his life that, that I would love to break down in the next episode. Cause I think we're going to advance him on here pretty easily. Yeah, you'd be right. Definitely syndrome. I, I dove into the lore of Mordu today and realized how, how great of a legend that character has, but it does not play much of a part into brave the film. Yeah. And he's a big scary bear who dies at the end. So, yep, I agree. Syndrome has a lot of layers to him and we can we can dive into that next time. Julia, bear or super villain in revenge? Super villain in revenge. <laughs> yeah. I just think his um from a writing perspective, I just think that his like the reason he became a villain is so creative. And it's like kind of reminiscent of like, I don't know, society today, even, you know, sure. that like weird kid at the end of the block, you know, maybe <laughs> mm-hmm. watch out. So, yeah, I just think it's really creative. <laughs> Honestly, yes. <laughs> it took me so many uh, passes through my notes to not make that analogy. But oh, that's no! definitely that's oh, definitely no! the vibe that we get out of syndrome. And, and that's unfortunate in the society that we live in. But let's talk about this final matchup of the round of 16. It's the number six, Stinky Pete from Toy Story 2 versus the number 11, Charles Muntz. This is a matchup besides Stinky Pete. This is a Charles Muntz matchup in which I had to go back and kind yeah. of revisit who yeah. Charles was. And I think that's a that's just because up is a lot. It is. <laughs> up, is up is a lot. There's a lot of stories happening. There's a lot of characters we have to keep up with. And they don't spend too much time. They don't spend too much time ingraining the memory of who Charles Munz is and the and what the role he plays into the film like the eccentric others. So you have like Doug, the talking dog. You have Kevin, the massive, colorful bird. You have Carl, the curmudgeon. You have Russell, the overachieving Boy Scout. You even have the love story at the beginning that kind of washes your memory before you even have a chance to make it. So Up kind of suffers from a lot happening. Uh, And then you get to Charles Muntz. So Charles is the adventurer that Carl and Ellie really looked up to as a kid. He's this 30s celebrity. 
he used to go on these expeditions and bring back species and exotic goods from these places and put them into a museum. He goes after this 13 foot tall bird and they never hear from him. He gets lost. And so we end up in Paradise Falls after Carl's house takes a flight. And that's where we end up seeing Charles Muntz. And that's where he's been stranded. And all this time he's been obsessing over trying to find this bird and he hasn't been able to capture it. And so he has gone a little bit crazy. So he has this this lone man on the planet stir craziness about him and when he meets our main characters he's very welcoming to them he invites them to dinner but then he learns that they have made contact with this bird so he turns instant villain on them he's (laughs) instantly ready to get through any obstacle it takes to capture this bird including killing our main characters so Long story short, there's this long chase scene. Uh, We see that Charles knows how to wield some weapons. He gets into a sword fight with Carl at one point. He brings a gun onto Carl's floating away house, and he's ready to shoot and kill everybody in his way. But uh, Kevin escapes. Kevin the bird escapes through a window, brings Russell with him, and Charles dives for the bird to reach for him. But unfortunately, the house has already floated over the cliff and Charles plummets to his death. He does have some great kind of villain monologue moments. And that's something that Pixar really plays up. There is a moment from Charles that I really liked at dinner where he's looking at the bird skeleton. He's talking about how much what this means to him. And he says, here they come, these bandits, and they think that this bird is theirs to take. They soon find that this mountain is a very dangerous place. As in, like, he's the one that is out here making sure that anyone that shows up, he's going to take care of so that he's the one that finds this bird and takes it back. I think that's great. I I love when these villains have these monologues. I love when either they're self-aware monologues like we see in The Incredibles or even they have these little split moments of, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's actually kind of bad. And we get that out of Charles. I like that. Stinky Pete. Uh, This is a dude that we love up until the latter third of the film. He's presented as this character that's never been out of the box. He's one of Al's collectibles that is going to get shipped off to a museum in Tokyo. And Woody is completing the set so they can actually go now. Pete says he's never been out of the box. He's never been played with. He's always sat on a shelf and he's been fine with that because that ups his value in the show that he is the character of. He is the kind of bumbling prospector that is very endearing. So kids love him. Uh, He's seen as a, a protagonist in that world. But soon we find out that he wants to achieve this status, this status of museum royalty so bad that he's willing to do whatever it takes to get onto this flight to Tokyo. And a lot of it comes from the trauma of the fact that he sat on a shelf and wasn't chosen to be played with. And it's that kind of Lotso thing where if if I didn't get played with, none of you are going to get played with. So much so that you're all going to come to a museum with me and not get played with. So we see that he turns on them. He kind of keeps everybody hostage, throws them into the suitcases so that they get taken off to the airport. There's the airport baggage chase scene that inspired all of us as kids to want to know what's behind those rubber flats at the at the airport. Does it look like it looks like in Toy Story 2? Because yes. I'm trying to go see that right now. 
goes back there. There's a mad chase. He pins down Woody, opens up the masterwork of our boy, our boy Jerry the Cleaner, opens him right on up, tears his arm again, and is about to pickaxe Woody's head in, gets stunned by a, a camera flash that the Andy Toy Gang gives to him. He falls. Buzz picks him up. They shove him into a little girl's backpack, and he goes off and is now Amy's toy. So that that's Stinky Pete. He is somebody that has this manipulative way about him. He brings, he welcomes people in and then traps you. Uh, he's willing to do whatever it takes, including stab you in the face with a pickaxe in order to get what he need, thinks he needs and what he wants. Very selfish kind of person. So these these two are very well matched. They yeah. have very similar motives and they're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to kill in order to make either one happen. And so in this matchup, I I really, really, really like Stinky Pete as a character because he he does do that character development of like bringing you in and and making you feel welcome only to take you hostage. But I think that the pure ruthlessness and the the feeling of being chased like you're being chased by a horror monster that you get out of Charles Muntz in that final third of the film of Up after revisiting might put the villainy over it, over Pete for me. And it's because like Charles goes into this blind rage and that's scary and that, that feels very evil. So I'm going to go with Charles Muntz here. Wow. I, um, yeah. I also kind of revisited this character and something I like to do with some of these characters that are not main characters when we're studying for these brackets is like just go into YouTube and type in the yep. character name and just watch some clips. And when I typed in Charles Muntz, one of the top hits was a video that said why Charles Muntz is the best Pixar villain or like Whoa. why Charles Muntz is a perfect movie villain or something. I was like, okay, I'm gonna, based on the way I remember this movie, I'm going to have to do some, some work to get to that point. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I ever got there, but, yeah. but I do, I do think I stumbled upon something that I found interesting about Charles Muntz. Um, obviously he's got this, uh, trying to reclaim his, uh, sense of like self-worth, uh, his, his name and his recognition. He was a big pop culture star and, and he wants to get that back. And the only way to do it is to gain credibility again. And so what's interesting though, is they're on this tour throughout Charles's blimp. First mm -hmm. of all, the dude is comfortable. He's, <laughs> He's living large. I don't know if you, you know, someone who's like, so comfortable in certain situations like my brother and his wife go out to eat a lot they're uh -huh. very comfortable in restaurants and so when we go out to eat with them it's like they're they're like professionals like the, <laughs> just the way that they move about the restaurant the way they talk to the people it's like my i will never get to that level where like yeah. i just know exactly what's going on but this is kind of the way I see Charles Muntz on this ship. And he's got all of these like, uh, you know, he's asking for wine and like, it's like an or some type of orchestrated dance mm -hmm. and he knows exactly where to be at every moment and where yeah. everyone else is going to be at that moment as well. And it's like, okay, this guy's been here for a while, long while. And he takes everyone through this museum and he's found all of these things things 
And you're like, okay, so why are you still like in this blimp? Like this isn't enough for you. And so that's when it really clicked for me that Charles Muntz is very similar to P. Sherman and Darla and what they represent, this sense Mm. of colonization that is the exact opposite of Carl, where Charles Muntz says, I'm going to find value by taking from my environment and the world is mine to be found. Adventure is out there. I want to be the first man to find the animal. I want to be the first man. And like, that was the thing, right? Like the age of explorers, the age of inventors, like everyone was trying to be first. I mean, to an extent, people still try to be first at things, but, but it was a big deal to be a first solo flight across the Atlantic, you know? And so Charles, I think is really hung up on this idea that, the world is his for the conquering. And if that means the death of this beautiful exotic animal, doesn't matter. Someone's got to do it because someone's got to be first and it's going to be me. And kind of speaks to, you know, a societal problem that we have today where it's not about one person doing something over another. If we all just step back a few steps, we can all do it together. Look no further than the baggage claim at an airport. (laughs) Tell me why everyone is standing right in front of it when literally no bags are even on the thing yet. If everyone just took 10 steps back, we could all from a distance see when our bags go down the thing and we can all walk up to it uninhibited and get our bag in an orderly fashion and in a safe way. Preach. Sorry. Sorry. Amen. I'm getting hot. Amen. Stinky Pete. Yeah, same stakes for Stinky Pete, but I just think that the Stinky Pete sort of like, uh, I don't know, the moral that Stinky Pete's character is getting at, I think is one of more relevance to me personally. Mm. The idea that everyone has a self-worth and people who assign their self-worth to literal... (laughs) monetary value like that's kind of messed up you know like like oh if i'm not played with i'm worth more money than you you trash yeah (laughs) (laughs) you stupid like look at your hat like you you. need look we need to stick a q-tip on your eyeball like go on (laughs) you peasant raggedy (laughs) what are you raggedy (laughs) um and so like and like ultimately like that is the moral of the movie Toy Story 2, the idea that like nothing is as valuable as memory and as time together. Uh, A well-worn toy is a well-loved toy, Uh, just like a well-worn anything is a well-loved anything. And so um, all of that kind of wraps up into the villainy of Stinky Pete. Um, And and kind of, uh, you know, he's got that lots of thing going on, kind of like you were saying where, He's uh, he kind of pulls you in a little bit before he uh, pulls the stripes, pulls the sheet, (laughs) pulls the what is it? Pulls the sheets over your eyes. Sure. Pulls the wool over your eyes. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Uh, (laughs) He turns into a sheep. I'm going to go with Stinky Pete with this one. Toy Story 2 is my personal favorite Pixar movie. And so I have to ride for my guy, Julia. Our last matchup is a tiebreak between the number six, Stinky Pete and Charles Muntz. What do we got? I wish they could honestly both be cut. I don't think they're great in either way. However, (laughs) 
If I were choosing, I would Which choose. You are. Yep. Oh, I am. Oh, shoot. Okay. I'm choosing. <laughs> All right. I choose. Da, 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 da. I choose Stinky Pete because oh. I love a flatulence. <laughs> God, I should have known. I should have known that room over there would go with the the potty <laughs> jokes. Bro, I'm farting right now. All about, we're, we're all about that in this family. One of my hey. favorite moments with Chris was starting Tell off. us, please. Oh, God. Tell the I don't even Give know. Story. One of my favorite moments, actually, when I knew that I fell in love with Chris is yeah. when we were, we were traveling. I was in Roanoke doing a show, and we were oh. just sitting in my room making fart noises. Hell, yeah. <laughs> and that's when I knew I loved my boyfriend. Hey. Fart noises with the mouth, not the butt. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was we a little just, call and response yeah, no, over we there. Were, we I thought just, you were doing uh, all Simon Says. Yeah, experimenting with just mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't butt. But <laughs> But that's it. Stinky Pete advances. It sure does. And we've reached the end of the first round. Kyle, what is our round of eight looking like? Yeah, we're looking like next time we're going to talk about the number one Sid versus the number eight Ernesto de la Cruz. Down the brackets, the number four Lazo versus the number five Randall. Across the brackets, the number two Hopper versus the number 10 Bruce. And the last matchup is going to be number three Syndrome and the number six Stinky Pete. Uh, Speaking of stank, Julia, thank you so much. (laughs) for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, I'm glad that you got your number one passed along. I'm glad you got the the fart man stinky feet <laughs> passed along. We can't, we can't wait until we have you on for next time. Yep, yep. All right, everyone. Well, you know how to reach us. If you got something to say about these takes, if you got a bracket idea of your own, if you want to hop on and do some co-hosting, you want to break some ties, email us at mousemanispodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord. All those channels are linked in the description of this podcast. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash mousemadness, where you can join us at the $5 level by becoming a member of Jerry's Gang. Folks, till next time, just, I just gotta say one thing. A good jigger, a good jigger.